here together at church, uh, praising our Lord Jesus. I had a dream growing up that I'm sure many of you would have had as well. Maybe some of you still harbor this dream. There is something that seems incredibly cool about having a job where you get to travel, flying in and out of new cities, nice hotels, coming in like an expert, running an event, doing some teaching, doing a conference, whatever it might be, eating out somewhere really nice, back on a plane, like, it just seems really cool to me, and maybe some of you uh, feel the same way. Well, a few years ago, I was kind of in that job. I was a manager for a national charity, uh, and it required me to fly all around the country uh, speaking at churches and uh, conducting training events, so on and so forth. Well, I don't want to burst anyone's bubble, but it's really not what you think it would be. Uh, basically, what it means is you fly into a city, you're really busy running stuff before you sit by yourself somewhere, eating a meal, feeling like you're a complete loser because everyone else is there with a group of friends having a good time, uh, before you're going back to a motel room where, again, you are on your own, uh, hoping that just maybe they might have sport on the TV. Uh, anyway, before basically either doing the same thing again the next day or flying out and heading off to another city. It doesn't take long at all before you're thinking of what? home. It doesn't take long at all until you're thinking, you know what, I prefer my bed at home. You know what, I think I prefer the, the food, the regular food that I eat at home. And one thing I get really sure of really quickly is how much I miss my wife and children. You're just like, oh man, this seemed really cool and maybe for a night it was, but, but now I just want to be home. The fact is, you're never completely at rest in those places, you're always occupied, you never feel quite like you fit in, you long for home. Here's the truth though, you get home and man, it's wonderful, particularly when your kids are little and they're like hanging out looking for you, waiting for you to walk in the door, not like when they're teenagers, it's like, Ugh. but anyway, um, it's really exciting and but guess what? A few days at home, and you're starting to wonder maybe I didn't mind the job. Uh, because guess what? The kids are nagging, and you know, your wife's upset at you for something, and you're just like, oh my goodness, this is maybe it was good on the road. Um, the reality is, we are never fully satisfied. As good as home is, as good as home is that place of peace and rest, even it never fully, fully satisfies. C.S. Lewis once said, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Right? If we find nothing in this world that will satisfy, the most probable explanation is we were made for another world. The truth is that our ultimate peace, our ultimate complete rest, our desire to be home cannot be fully satisfied in this world. That's a pressure we can't actually place on our family. No matter how many, how many renovations we do, our, our earthly home can never fully be our place of rest. The crux of our passage this morning is, where is our true home? 
Where will we be completely satisfied? See, that's the reality of what we're going to look at together this morning. So to get to our passage and to get there in context, we've got to think back a little bit to what's just transpired. I want you to think about this right now. What if you were told that next week your home, the place where you live, your family, even your pets, everything would be taken from you, the whole lot of it, and you were given notice that next week it's all gone? How would you be feeling at that point? Remember I said your family as well, everything. And you've been warned, next week, you're losing a lot. Anyone here feeling slightly disconcerted at that moment? Getting a couple of nods? A couple of people saying, no, it sounds good. No, uh, anyway. Um, No, right, that would be awful. Well, I want you to think about what's just happened in our passage. The disciples of Jesus have left family, have left home, have left jobs, have left security, have left comfort, have left the futures that were mapped out for them. And for three years, Jesus has been their home. Jesus has been their family. Jesus has been their security. Jesus is their future. Jesus is everything to these men. And last week, we looked at a passage where Jesus says, by the way, I'm out and you're not allowed to come. Right? Everything you've based your whole life around for three years Your entire future that you dreamed of where I'm going to be the conquering leader who will lead Israel back to the top of the nationalistic kingdoms of the world and you will be my right-hand man ruling over those things. Guess what? None of that's happening. I'm out. How would you feel? Right? We've got to throw ourselves back in the text. I mean, this is major bomb that Jesus is dropping on these men. Well, let's see how they felt. If you have your Bibles there, we're up to John chapter 14, and we're going to read, uh, work through 1 to 14 together this morning. We're going to start with 1 to 7. So John 14, 1 to 7. John 14, 1 to 7. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, so that where I am you may also be. You know the way to where I am going. Lord, Thomas said, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Amen. Now, the word troubled here, do not let your hearts be troubled, this is the same word used of Jesus back in chapter 12 when he is contemplating the cross. It is the same word used back in chapter 13 when he contemplates the betrayal of Judas. In other words, this is a deeply troubled word. This is a distraught word. 
And that same word that Jesus has when he thinks about the cross, he now says to the disciples, I'm going and you guys can't come. You just picture him kind of looking at them, looking at them and they're just going, ah! And he's like, do not let your hearts be troubled. Like they're in distress. They're completely freaking out. Everything we've built ourselves around is about to be pulled out from under us. What do we do? That, that is the context of what Jesus is about to say. It's important we understand that. Remember, Jesus also just declared that Peter is also going to deny Christ. And Peter is really the de facto leader of the disciples. And if Peter is going to deny Christ, how much more weight do they feel at Jesus' words? Right? You think about any hero of the faith that you have looked up to. If that person denies Jesus, you feel like how much more so the rest of us. Now that's the context, that's the weight of this moment. And the words of comfort and encouragement that Jesus is about to give are saying to these men, you only feel distressed because you've wrongly thought that this was your home. You've wrongly thought that Jesus right now in the world leading a national kingdom is your home. And in fact, that is not true. So Jesus, who is about to bear the sins of the world, Jesus, who is about to take on the wrath of the Father, the agony and shame, Jesus, who is the one who has to endure all of that, Jesus is the one who now comforts their troubled hearts. Isn't that just like Christ? Right? In all of the pain he has to bear, he is the one who is about to comfort them. So he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. This word may say trust uh, in your translation. Trust in God. Trust in me. But you can't miss what Jesus is actually saying. He's putting himself once again on the same level as the Father. Right? Trust in God and trust in me. Trust in, uh, believe in God, believe in me. Jesus is putting himself in the same weight of the Father. So really important in the context of this whole passage that once again we see Jesus is God in the flesh, right? So Jesus states that right at the beginning. So he says, trust in him, he is going to prepare a place for us. Now, for some people, the image we have is that Jesus was a chippy, and so he's up there right to this day, nailing beams together and noggins, which is a word I've just learned since that's happening at our house. Uh, I still don't really know what it means, but it's something to do with wood. Um, Or can you have metal ones? I don't know. Anyway, so uh, is that what Jesus is doing right now? Is he like up there knocking together our houses for us? He's going to prepare a place for us. No, the context of this passage is the place exists. Jesus is going to the place that already exists. How is Jesus preparing a place for us? Well, Jesus is preparing the place by the cross and the resurrection. That's what this passage is saying, is that through Jesus dying on the cross, 
through Jesus paying the penalty of our sin, through Jesus defeating sin and death, he will have prepared a place for us in heaven. Unless Jesus dies on the cross for you, unless Jesus pays the penalty of your sin, you have no place in heaven. Amen? Right? The death and resurrection of Jesus is what prepares a place in heaven for us. Jesus is saying, I am going now to prepare your place. Where is Jesus going right now in the context of our passage? To the cross. Right? That is how he prepares a place for us. That when we put our faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus, we are made whole, our sins are forgiven, and we are ready to be in eternity. The many rooms literally means a room in a house. That's what it translates as. Jesus is simply saying that his Father dwells in heaven and there are many rooms. In other words, there is place for all who put their faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus to dwell with the Father forever. That's what it means. Anyone ever remember or hear taught that Jesus was going to prepare a mansion for us in heaven. Anyone ever heard that? It goes around sometimes. That's really unfortunate because the Greek word for place is meno. And when they did a Latin translation of the Bible, it translates to mansions in Latin. And then they translated, so they went Greek to Latin, and then they translated the English Bible from the Latin and went to mansions, which it never meant. It's a place, not a mansion. Our hope is not in a mansion. Our hope's to be with God, isn't it? To be with Him forever. Our true home is not a mansion. Our true home is with Christ face to face forevermore. That's what Jesus is saying in this passage. I will prepare a place for you. I will prepare it by my death and resurrection so that you can dwell with God forevermore. Always remember... We talk about this because we have to keep focusing in on it. The Scripture tells us that God Himself is our pearl of great price. God Himself is the treasure that we forsake everything else to have, right? It's not about any uh, eternal mansion. It's about the fact that the goal of our faith is God and the promise of Scripture is that we get to be with Him. That's what the Scripture is telling us here. Our goal is not to bring our worldly values to heaven. How disgusting would it be if the drive to have a big mansion on earth is the same drive we bring to heaven? That's gross. No, no, the goal of our faith is that we get to be with Him forevermore, to behold Him face to face, to see the glorious radiance of God and not die. That is the joy of our faith, right? To see the glorious face of God and not die. Why? Because Jesus prepared the place for us through his death and resurrection. Now, to bring the disciples comfort and for us, Jesus says, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back again. And this makes so much sense in what we've just been talking about. If the cost of preparing a place, if the preparing a place is the death and resurrection of Jesus, the agony of the cross, the wrath of the Father against sin, Jesus says, if I pay your penalty to prepare a place to you, then I will guarantee you that I am going to grab the reward of my labor. 
If I pay the price of suffering to bring you to heaven, then you can guarantee that I'm going to actually collect the fruit of my suffering. Doesn't that make sense? If Jesus died for you in agony, was separated from the Father, the Father turned his face away as God's wrath against sin was poured out on Christ and he paid that willingly for you. He says, know this, if I have paid that penalty, then I'm going to collect the fruit of my suffering, which is you. Have, have faith that because I have suffered in your place, I will come and get you and bring you home. That's the promise, and it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, seriously, you don't even spend 20 bucks on something without going, oh, they forgot to give me that item. I'm going back to make sure I get it, right? Like, seriously, I bought that thing. They've ripped me off. I've looked in the box, and they've forgotten to give me a Big Mac, and I'm going back to Macca's to pick it up, right? We, we want what we've paid for, don't we? And Jesus paid the ultimate price for you. He who knew no sin became sin, died on the cross that you might become the righteousness of God. He paid the ultimate price, and he says, I've paid it so you know deep in your heart, I paid the ultimate price, and I'm coming to get what's mine. I will come back again. Right? That's the promise that Jesus, man, just think about it. Remember our context? These guys, their hearts are troubled. Oh, man, Jesus said he's going. My whole future just feels like it's been ripped out from under me. And Jesus says, you know for sure that I'm coming to bring you home. Never doubt. Never doubt. But that's the peace that he's offering. Church, when your hearts are troubled, when you're going through some kind of pain, it's because this is not yet our true home. Pain and sorrow come in this life, don't they? Jesus says, do not doubt that I'm coming back to collect the price I paid you and bring you home. Right? That's where our peace comes from. Then he says, you know the way to your true home. You know your way to peace. You know your way to rest. I've told you the way. And, and Thomas, who just seems to always get a rap in Scripture for never quite believing. I, again, it's a little bit like Peter. I think he only ever says what other guys are thinking, but he's the guy who says it. He goes, well, hang on. Hang on a second. You haven't told us where you're going. And if you haven't told us where you're going, then how can we possibly know the way? And now comes one of those incredibly famous verses that many, 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 many people know and how joyful it is Jesus' response to Thomas is, well, Thomas, you do know because I am the way, the truth, and the life. Right? If you know Jesus, says Jesus to Thomas. Thomas, you say you don't know the way or where I'm going. Thomas, you're speaking to the way, the truth, and the life, right? Jesus is all of those things. No one comes to the Father except through him. And Thomas did know that. Just very quickly, Jesus as the truth, right? This is just in the Gospel of John. Why is Jesus the truth? Because he is God's word in John 1.18, 1.18, 
He says and does exclusively what the Father gives him to say in John 5.19 and 8.29. Indeed, he is properly called God in John 1.18 and 20.28. He is God's gracious self-disclosure in the Word made flesh in John 1.14, right? It just goes on and on and on that Jesus is the truth, the full disclosure of God. It's been there right through the Gospel of John, and John sa- uh, Jesus says to Thomas, here it is, I'm the truth, I've been telling you, but let me make it clear. What about the life? Jesus is the life in John 1.4. He has life in himself in John 5.26. He's the resurrection and the life in John 11.25. He's the true God in, and eternal life in 1 John 5.20, right? It's there again and again and again that he is the truth of God. He is the life of God. He is the only way to God. Right? It's just made so clear here, but it's right throughout the whole Gospels. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And there is no other way. Can we just make that abundantly clear this morning? Mohammed cannot save you. Buddha cannot save Krishna, Krishna cannot save. Religion cannot save. Politicians cannot save. Materialism, wealth, power cannot save. Jesus saves. Amen? He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through the Son. Jesus saves because he is God. He says, if you know him, you know the Father. If you have seen Jesus, you have seen the Father. Jesus perfectly obeyed the Father. He only spoke what the Father willed. If you want to know what the Father is like, then Jesus says you simply look to the Son. Okay? He alone is God in the flesh. When Jesus says he is the way, remember, anything less than Jesus as fully God and fully man cannot save you. Jesus as merely a prophet cannot save. Jesus as a moral teacher cannot save. Jesus as a little God cannot save. Jesus as any other variation than he is God and he is man cannot save. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And if you've seen him, you've seen the Father because he is fully God and fully man. This is the cornerstone of salvation, knowing who Christ is. All right? 100% God, 100% man. And then we have one of the proofs I mention fairly often. If you were making up a religion, you wouldn't write so much dumb stuff about yourselves, would you? And the disciples just faithfully record their stupid responses and their stupid questions and their stupid things they do. Why? Because that's what they did. And honestly, if we were going to write about ourselves in our walk with Jesus, wouldn't there be a fair amount of space dedicated to saying and doing dumb things? Right? 
Well, that's what the disciples do, and they just write it down. Why? Because it happened. They're not making it up. So think about the flow of the passage. Jesus is saying, trust God and trust me because I am God. I will prepare a place for you. I will bring you there. You will be with me and the Father. I am the only way to heaven. And then Philip says, and this brings us to John 14, 8 to 11, the next little bit of our passage. Lord, said Philip, show us the Father and that's enough for us. Isn't that hilarious on the top of what Jesus has just been telling them? I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Great, great. Uh, can you show us the Father? Right? That's literally what just happened in the passage. And Jesus said to him, Have I been among you all this time? And you do not know me, Philip. I love, again, the Bible equally records Christ's frustration at times with these guys. Like I said, we're exactly the same, but, oh, come on, Philip. You know, I just told you, like literally a second ago. um, The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. The Father who lives in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Don't you love it? You can almost feel a bit of frustration coming out through the passage. You ever zone out in a conversation and then have to come back into the conversation? And if you chime back into the conversation with something that's already been said, you 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 just reveal the fact that you weren't listening anyway. I just feel like that's Philip in this conversation. He's just been zoned out. You know, he saw a rabbit hopping by or something and he was watching it. And then all of a sudden he goes, oh, Jesus mentioned the Father. Show us the Father. Jesus, hang on. I just told you. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Like That's what sort of feels like in this text. I mean, this has been building, hasn't it? Again, Jesus here is not telling us new things. He's summarizing the things he's been telling us in the gospel of John. We've already seen the Jews attempt to stone Jesus when he said before Abraham was, I am, using the name of God. We've already seen him say that I and the Father are one, right? We've seen Jesus claiming again and again that he is God. And so he's not telling Philip anything new. He's saying, Philip, think about it. Think about what you've seen. Think about what I've said. Think about how I act. Philip, look at who I truly am. I am in the Father. The Father is in me. I am the triune God, one in essence, three in person. I speak what the Father says. I've backed it up with works that only God can do. Healing a man born blind, raising someone from the death after four days. Right, Philip, pause. Who am I? The question that every single person has to answer. Because unless you acknowledge that Jesus is God, you cannot be saved. Unless you acknowledge that he is God and you put your faith in him, you cannot be saved. 
It's amazing to me when people try to pass Jesus off as someone other than God. I find it even more amazing, though, when people try to tell me that Jesus never claimed to be God. You ever heard that? People say, oh, yeah, no, Jesus never claimed to be God. I mean, we've seen in the Gospel of John alone, he constantly claims to be God. There's a reason that they want to stone him to death for blasphemy, for claiming to be God. Because he claimed to be God, right? This is what's going on in our passage again and again and again. Jesus claimed to be God and we must accept him as as God to be saved. Which brings us to the final part of our passage this morning. John 14, 12 to 14. John 14, 12 to 14. Truly I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do. And he will do even greater works than these because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Well, time for a tricky verse, hey? Time for one of those greatly out-of-context verses that often get used. I tell you what, the way some people interpret the passage, no dead person should ever be safe from resurrecting power again, right? Because if Jesus can raise someone from the dead after four days and we're going to do greater works, then look out. No one will ever die again. We'll just be resurrecting them all. Or if Jesus can feed the 5,000, look out. Our next men's brekkie coming up won't be the same because we can just multiply the bacon. Still won't be enough. Now, anyway, um, so a lot of people say, well, that's what this passage means. We should be doing greater miracles than Christ. Here it is, plain as day. And if we aren't doing those things, then clearly the problem is we lack faith. Right? That's the answer that some people will give you. We lack faith. The church today lacks faith. And that's the only reason we're not seeing miracles consistently on those scales. Problem is, Jesus said we only need faith the size of a mustard seed to move mountains. You really think our faith is so much substantially smaller than the disciples, etc., who constantly doubted Christ? The truth is, we just don't see greater miracles than those. It's interesting to me that in churches that focus incredibly on miracles, you often hear about headaches stopping, anxiety disappearing, backache vanishing, but what you don't see is a crippled limb extending out and becoming whole. What we don't see is a child born blind seeing. What we don't see is a person almost dead from cancer being instantly cured. Right? We don't see greater miracles than what Christ did. Now, I believe with all my heart that God can do any of those things. 
God is all-powerful. I mean, obviously we saw Jesus doing those things. But it's not the normal practice of the church. And it's not our normal experience. I doubt anyone in this room could say, I believe in Jesus and I consistently do greater miracles than he did. So what's going on in this passage? The key is we will do greater works in the context of the passage because Jesus is going to the Father, is what Christ says. Because I'm going to the Father, it's going to trigger something. It's going to cause something which enables greater works to happen. Here's what we know. Both Jesus' words and deeds were somewhat veiled in the time of his earthly ministry. He spoke about things that no one could understand before the death and resurrection of Christ. Consistently through John, we've had to go, they're reflecting back now. They're reflecting back and going, oh, this is what Jesus meant. This is what happened. This is what was occurring. Because at the time, they didn't understand. The reality is, it's the death and resurrection of Christ that's going to make the ministry of Jesus clear. The signs and works Jesus performed during his earthly ministry could not fully accomplish their true end until Jesus had been risen from the dead. Let me say something controversial. Jesus, in his earthly ministry, never saved anyone. Just waiting to see if anyone's going to throw something at me. I hope you find that a little controversial anyway. Gee. Here's the thing. Jesus was the last of those under the law, wasn't he? Didn't Jesus perfectly fulfill the law? Jesus was the last of those fully under the law. And although the law gave glory to God, the law was always intended to reveal the greater glory of the new covenant made in the blood of Christ. So the law was designed to reveal our sin. There was nothing wrong with the law, but it revealed the fact that we couldn't keep it. The law was good, it was given by God, but it simply revealed that you and I have a rebellious heart. So the law revealed that we are sinful, Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law, and then he reveals the greater, the new covenant by his blood, the covenant of grace. Saved by the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is why Jesus said of John the Baptist, among men born of woman, there has been no one greater. But he is the least in the kingdom of God. Why? Because John was a great guy. He lived under the law. He lived wholeheartedly for God. He lived to preach a baptism of repentance. But he was born under the law, not under the freedom of grace that the death and resurrection of Jesus is bringing in. Of course, Jesus ultimately saves everybody who is saved. Amen? Don't ever hear me say otherwise than that. But his earthly ministry was to fulfill the requirements of the law. But after Jesus ascends, after the resurrection, 
he sends the Holy Spirit. He sends the Holy Spirit so that we are born again, filled with the Spirit as the guarantee of our inheritance. Right? That's what happens, isn't it? After the death and resurrection of Jesus comes what? Pentecost. And on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is poured out and people are born again of the Spirit. Why do we do greater miracles than Christ? The only way we do a greater miracle is that He lived under the law, but now because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, He has commissioned you to preach the good news. And the good news will take someone who has been dead in sins and trespasses for five years, someone who's been dead in sins and trespasses for 20 years, somebody who's been dead in sins and trespasses for 60 years, and the good news will bring them to life. Amen? That is the greater miracle that we get to be a part of. Jesus says, I've fulfilled the law to prepare a place for you in all, in all eternity by grace, and then I will send my Spirit who will fill you with power, guaranteeing your inheritance, and then when you go out and proclaim the good news, you will see the death brought to life through the power of the gospel. Oh, church, how wonderful is that? What an amazing miracle that we get to be a part of. Right? Every time you preach the gospel and you see someone come to faith in Jesus, you're seeing the dead brought to life, born again in the Spirit. When we do our baptism service coming up, what are we celebrating in that baptism service? We are publicly demonstrating the fact that this person was dead. And now when they come out of that water, they have life in Christ. Man, at that baptism... We're celebrating, Cohen, how old are you? 25, um, glad that wasn't a woman, I don't know if you're supposed to ask them how old they are, but anyway, Cohen's 25, he's getting baptised. He became a Christian a little while ago, I'm not sure when exactly, but what we're, do, what we're saying is Cohen was a dead man. And just like Jesus calling Lazarus out of the tomb, Jesus has called Cohen to life through the hearing of the gospel. That's a great miracle. Maybe 20 years of of death followed by life because of Christ. Church, we get to be a part of that. That's what Jesus is saying. I'm going to prepare a place for you and I'm going to send the Spirit and in the Spirit you're going to proclaim the good news and you're going to see the miracle of resurrection from the dead when you preach Christ. Man, this is what we've seen since Jesus left, haven't we? After his death and resurrection, after the pouring out of his spirit, we see this small group of people hidden away and hiding from the powers of Rome. And now 2,000 years later, there is barely a place on earth where Christ's name isn't glorified through the preaching of the gospel. Right? Because people have gone out And through the proclamation of the gospel, through the power of the Spirit, they've seen the dead raised. Man, we get to be a part of that. Every time you share the gospel, you're a part of an amazing miracle of preaching life. The reality is that leads on to this last bit of the passage, which again, people can misconstrue, but in the context of the passage, Jesus says, 
The Father's going to be glorified through this ministry and, and what you ask in my name, I'm going to give that to you. I'm going to grant that to you. In the context of what Jesus has been talking about, he's saying this, the Father will be glorified when you ask, when you pray for the lost to be won, when you pray and ask for opportunities for the good news, like even the Apostle Paul did, when you live out the gospel, Jesus says, I'm going to hand those people over. I'm going to see them brought to life, that the Father will be glorified through the death and resurrection of the Son who gave them life. Jesus said, when you live out that missionary life, when you attempt to fulfill the great commission, then I'm going to answer your prayers and the dead are going to be raised. We're going to see the Spirit poured out and people come to life. Man, how cool is that? Every person in this room who's a Christian was once dead, but now has life because of Jesus. These are the prayers of mission, the prayers of opportunities for the gospel, the prayers of the dead being raised. Church, Jesus said you can do greater things in him in the sense that you get to see many, many, many people raised to life if you faithfully share the good news. Through Jesus, of course, but you get to be a part of that. So in summary... Here's what our passage has told us. When you feel troubled, unsettled, when it seems painful, remember the world is not your home. Secondly, trust in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. He has won a place for you with the Father in all eternity, which is your true home. Having paid such a great cost, he will come back again. Jesus is everything you need. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He will bring you to the Father. Jesus says these promises are also given by the Father, for if you know Jesus, you also know the Father. And he says you too get to be involved in the miracle of seeing the dead come to life. And lastly, he says, pray, and Jesus will glorify himself and the Father by using you for the gospel. Right? He takes a troubled group of men from fearing for their futures to telling them that they get to be involved in the miracle of seeing the death come to life. Church, do not be troubled. Trust Christ. Pray for his mission. Proclaim the good news and be involved in the miracle of seeing the dead come to life. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. Every person who has ever been saved or ever will be saved, those under the law, those under grace, are saved by the death and resurrection of Jesus because you have paid the penalty of our sin. But Lord, you give us an opportunity, Lord, to, to, to be a part of your saving plan. Lord, to go out there and proclaiming the good news, for we are not ashamed of the gospel. Lord, it's the power of life. 
Lord, may we get out there and present the gospel, the good news, and see the dead come to life, see Jesus saved them. Lord, we pray that instead of being troubled, instead of being fearful, Lord, may we be caught up in the wonder and glory of what you have done to prepare a place for us and for so many others. Lord, may we be faithful in presenting your good news. We pray that in your name, Jesus. Amen.